Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. From the outside looking in, Eleanor Conway had a pretty good gig going for herself as a music journalist for Virgin Mobile, interviewing the biggest pop stars and singers on the planet. But she was miserable on the inside, and Conway had to change her life inside out. She has since sobered up and lived to joke about it, taking her debut show about sex, addiction, and dating, Walk of Shame, to more than 10 countries around the world. Conway followed that up with her show, You May Recognize Me from Tinder, but it's her 2021 show, Vaxxed and Waxed, which is the first that Conway has brought to the United States, performing in New York City for the 2022 Frigid Festival. Conway sat down with me between shows to talk about her life and career. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. So, Eleanor Conway, thank yes. you for joining me. You're you're waxed and you're vaxed. I'm vaxed and waxed. Right. It's it's that's the order you have to do it in, right? Yeah, V and W. Vaxed right, because it it doesn't matter if you're waxed if you're not vaxed first. Yeah, and I'm ready to climax. <laughs> <laughs> but do you Always. pay your tax? I do. That's, that's very and important. I, have we all had all your priorities? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't do smack. Um, so how, how, how are you enjoying America so far? It's, it's awesome, but horrible at the same time. Like, it's, like New York is this monolithic place, isn't it? It's this unfriendly place, but it, it's also, it, it's got this energy to it. It's got this energy to it that is kind of a, that London doesn't have. Yeah. Um, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Like comedy clubs here are, are awesome. Like they're so good. And you know, you're in the be- you're in the city with the best of the best. So it's incredible to be here, really. Is this your first time in New York City? It is indeed. How do you think you would have experienced it as a sound engineer versus experiencing <laughs> it as a comedian? Well, I never really, I just studied sound engineering at university. Nice one. Well done. Um, and nobody's ever asked me that. But um, I used to be, I used to be a music journalist um, after I studied sound engineering and uh, I was doing a lot of drugs at the time. So I'm pretty sure I would have, I would have fucked up relationships everywhere, probably. Now, see, when I was, I mean, I still am a journalist, but when I was a journalist uh, in newspapers, which used to be a thing to be a newspaper reporter. Uh, I fashioned myself. I was going to be the next Hunter S Thompson, which I thought was going to be fabulous and romantic and mythic. Uh, What did you think you were going to be when you were a music journalist? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know. I think I was driven by ego in that point, whereas it was all about what could I get in the VIP? What acts could I speak to? You know, so like the, it wasn't about me performing, which is what I do now, but it was about who could I interview and the level that they were. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so it was all about who I could be seen with or what, what room I could get in in a club, what after parties I could get into. Really small thinking, really. But that was what drove, that's what drove it, really. But I was too fearful of uh, my own voice, right? But, you know, I got sober about seven years ago and um, part of that process is about understanding your voice and, and accepting it, right? Yeah. Was it ego that got you into music journalism in the first place? I wanted to be Bjork. So I studied sound engineering at university and I wanted to be Bjork. So I wanted to like sing and be like a producer and be this sort of like dance music artist. But I was quite lazy. <laughs> I was quite lazy. <laughs> and I was well, drinking. A sh- <laughs> I was drinking a shitload. <laughs> well, I mean, part of being Bjork is being Icelandic, right? It's, there's a certain there's a certain aesthetic that the Icelandic people have that as a Brit, you just can't. Yeah, but I, yeah. But I I'm not just talking about like the, the, the swan dress. I'm not talking about no. that. It's, there's a whole, there's a whole thing. No, but I wanted to be like the British Bjork. That's what I wanted to be. Okay. Uh, but like when she, but when she was good, like not now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is she not, is like, she not vaxxed or waxed? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's that. But then, um, then I got bored of doing music stuff because it's pop stars aren't that interesting or fun. Mm-hmm. Unless you get someone like, um, Calvin Harris who can be, you know, someone like that. So it's like there's a couple of people along the way that you kind of go, Oh, they're really fun. But like someone like Justin Bieber is like dry as fuck. Can we swear on this podcast? Yes, we can. Yeah, yeah. And not just um, not just bollocks and bloody. We can whoa. do all. The, we can do all. Oh of my the, god! All of the words. Uh, yeah, oh that, god, rem- sh- that sh- reminds me. Range. The worst. That reminds me. The worst interview I've ever been a part of as a journalist was. This was when I was still working for newspapers. Uh, back in like 2006, I interviewed Chris Brown. Can you separate the man from the art? Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, I said 2006, <laughs> so this is 16 years ago. So he was just a he was just a teenager. So I, I at the time I just wrote it off as oh he's like 16 years old. Of course, this is what interviewing a 16 year old is like. He just happens to be a famous 16 year old. Do you but, think it'd be weird to be famous famous 16 year old? Yeah. Yeah, fame's changed, isn't it? Really. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I had social media as a teenager, if I would have had better luck. I don't know that I would have wanted. Did you want to be famous? Is that, is that what you wanted to be? Did you want to be famous? Hmm. I think almost famous. (laughs) In fact, that was, that was, that was one of my, that was one of my favorite movies when I was younger was almost famous. I like the idea of being close to fame without having to deal with all of the, the hard parts of it. I just yeah, wanted I the fun was... aspects. I think, is that what attracted you as a music journalist? Is like, you got to be around people like Justin Bieber, but you didn't have to deal with all of the rigmarole. <laughs> well, it's, it's easier to be around Justin Bieber than to be Justin Bieber. Right. Right. It's an easy way to, to like, like, like guarantee, you can guarantee the outcome a little bit easier than, like, oh, I'm going to be a pop star, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a successful pop star. It's much harder to be a successful pop star than it is to be a journalist. No offense. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do you know no, what I mean? Like, I, it's it's an interesting question though because even when even when I had that pivot as a journalist and began getting involved in comedy, I was in my I was still young. I was I was in my mid twenties, and I was in Seattle, which is a good place to be a music journalist. Still, but I I got involved in improv and then stand up. But my goal was to like to host a TV show. My goal wasn't to be like doing stand up in arenas. So, thing is, I I, I think I would like to do stand up in theaters rather than arenas. I think mm-hmm. I do like. I think arenas are too big for for what I do. To be honest. It's all about the intimacy and the um, the secrets, and you know the kind of uniting the energy of the room. And I think a stadium's too big for that. I, I mean, like a I've got a choice. <laughs> I think a stadium's too big for any comedian, although some some enjoy it. Maybe because the fame aspect outweighs the logistics. But if because I've been in the audience at an arena show, and it's you're you're so distant from the from the art and the artist. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, it would be a nice problem to have. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie, Sean. Like, oh, can I, can I do? Uh, oh, I don't know whether you're selling down too many theatres, Eleanor. What we're we gonna do? We're gonna have to move you up to a. Th- yeah, right, it would be a nice are, problem to have. These are luxury problems. Right? Yeah, very luxury problems. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned being sober, and yeah. how being a music journalist wasn't giving you the satisfaction you desired. What was that? Did the turning point happen first with your personal life or your professional life? Oh, it was a bit of a murky one because I was, what did I do? I was doing the show for Virgin and then, and then it just all fell apart and I was drinking a lot. And to be honest, in my heart of hearts, I just felt like I couldn't go any further. Like, because I was already like, working for some pretty cool music brands and interviewing loads of people. But the problem with interviewing like a Bieber is that you have to interview some of their shit, act, the, some of the label shit acts to get mm-hmm. that one. Right. So it's like a little sort of like, do you know what I mean? It's like a little sort of dance you play with a label. You go, we'll give you this one, but you have to interview three of our upcoming acts mm-hmm. and they're all shit. Or like, they're just not, there's not a lot to talk about. It's like, oh, it's your debut album. You're 21. You're from Norwich, are you? Do you know what I mean? It's like, uh, you still live at home with your mum. Like, and like, what are you going to blah? And as you hit 30, it's just, you just, you're just a bit soul crushing, really. Um, and then I had a period of like a sort of slow descent into a car crash. Um, and I was trying to do something in comedy, but it wasn't comedy. It was like hosting. I was trying to put these game shows together. Um, and then, um, and then I got sober and I was like, everybody needs to know my story. And I wrote this show. I wrote this show about running away with my drug dealer to Asia to, you know, be a music journalist and to like work for mafia and to and he was really like mean to me out there he was really abusive and i'd never told it was part of my trauma that had made me come into a massive like spiral when i got back from asia when i was about 28 and um you know um I, I told this story on stage. I'd not taken therapy or anything like that about how he smashed the shit out of me and threatened to kill my family and all that horrible shit. And um, I told it on stage, and it was sort of therapy, but it was sort of, but it was, but it was storytelling and stand up and 
um, people people connected with that. And that was really fundamental for me because I thought I needed to tell someone. And I thought the easiest way is to do an Edinburgh festival run for 25 days. <laughs> 25 days and I'd never and I was really dealing with a lot of female shame around getting sober the stuff that I'd done just before I got sober and that story that had led me to getting sober and telling honestly that story I genuinely thought audience members would be like yeah you deserved it it's your fault and really obviously now like I can see that that the opposite happened there was compassion connection kept Make it, making people cry in, in my show, which is fucking great if you're taking a show to Edinburgh Festival. Everyone loves a dead dad story or like a trauma story. That's the, that's the, that's the heart of Edinburgh Festival. Um, and, and, you know, off that, off the back of that show, I toured it around the world. And so, you know, now this current show that I'm doing, Vax to Wax, is about, well, it touches on a lot of like female pleasure, orgasm equality. I talk a little bit about when I was a sugar baby, but I was a really bad one. Um, but it, but it deals with a lot of issues of like female shame and female sexuality. And it's all, it's all stems from being, firstly, from getting sober and telling another woman about all my shame and her going, Oh yeah, I've done that. Um, and then. <laughs> which anyone that's listening that's sober will understand that process but then also you know it, it, it's you know that first show and that trauma and that that it's now i'm now doing a bit more of a observational version of that i'm mm-hmm. not i'm not digging up part i'm not digging up any more trauma because i've got none left i'm seven years sober so i've got i've got no trauma left <laughs> i'm all right i'm fine <laughs> don't worry the world will still deliver more trauma uh, but it won't. It will never be on the scale of when you add alcohol and drugs into the mix. True. How, and for how, personal trauma, I mean, we're, we're all we're all in a collective trauma right now, Sean. Right. I'm I'm curious, you know, because the, you're you're talking about how your first show was was Walk of Shame, right? And yes. And in essence, your first show was a little bit of a qualification, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're telling your story. But you're 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 coming out of it with experience, strength, and hope that there is a path forward. Obviously, recovery was vital to the process. But in terms of teaching you that you could share your story and not be scared of your story and not have not have shame about your story. Well, you know, like the logistical things is like people in sobriety really supported me, even when I was shit. Like when I was properly bad at comedy they supported me um and there's that saying in the rooms that 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 people will love you until you love yourself and i really got that but i didn't just get that from the sober people i got that from the audience that came and saw me because you know it might not have been perfect comedy wise but there was a real heart and truth and actually i've never heard it explained like that that it was a experience it was a qualification um but um it was everything like that process of early recovery that kind of doing, you know, I don't want to talk to cause my sponsor or kill me. <laughs> She'd be like, you're not supposed to talk about this stuff in public, but, um, <laughs> but let's just keep it vague. Mm-hmm. The honesty with which the honesty that you have to get to when you get sober, that is a fundamental lesson, an adult lesson, like to not have shame, to not have shame. And I think female shame is this, oh, it's this really horrible i don't know it's different it's very different to male shame because it's compacted by everyone's expectations of us but um to be able to have no shame no shame in in anything that i've done is um is very freeing and it's very empowering and it allows you to go into the world and just put put energy into the world that that is honest and yeah like some like sometimes i go to 
another lady, I say, oh, I'm a bit embarrassed. I wish I, I wish I hadn't done that. And they go, that's your truth. Just own it. You know, so yeah, it had everything to do with it, man. <laughs> oh my God. I'm on, um, I'm on New York Hinge at the moment. And uh, there's lo- I keep matching with moderates, which means they're Republicans, doesn't it? Right. That is, that is an interesting thing, right? To be, to be on a dating app. I mean, because that was your, that was your second show. No, uh, your- well, uh, yeah, no, so you may recognize me from Tinder. It was like, yeah, it was like the, uh, the sort of modern dating sex sugar baby show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're um, right. When you're, when you're on a dating app today in America, I suppose it could be this way in the UK too, that if you see someone who says moderate, are there really moderates today? Is <laughs> Well, they'll say that I think it's Republicans disguising themselves as moderates in order to get laid because nobody really wants to like no, no straight liberal woman wants to fuck a Republican man for pleasure. Really? Every once in a while I do see I'm on Bumble. Every once in a while I do see women who say they post like conservative and Christian and just, lay it all Ooh. out there and you're just like okay i mean i guess by the way shout out to all the republican you know straight men listening i love you get my dms <laughs> it's, my, it's it's my mission to have sex with a republican while i'm in america just just do you, feels do quite you, dirty it's <laughs> quite since, dirty which do you feel you would have a, an easier time of persuading someone to your political philosophy through comedy or through sex? Through sex, absolutely. A rep- any man will say any shit to, to get naked with a, a, another person. Mm-hmm. They'll be like, yeah, I believe in equal rights. Yeah, I believe in freedom of choice. <laughs> so you Just think let you- me touch your tits. <laughs> so you think through Hinge, through Hinge you have a better... you you'll you could have a better track record through hinge of getting people to adopt your political philosophy than, than through, well, I, than through maybe, coming maybe to your 20- show, <laughs> coming, coming maybe. with you versus coming to your show. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about maybe in 2024 or like whenever you vote for that, the next guy, the person to be mm-hmm. in the white house, that maybe I could just sort of um, take, sort of go on a little road trip and do like a hinge sort of <clears throat> one woman, conversion you know get them to vote democrat so we don't get a nutter in the white house you know like i'll just take hinge and kind of like start matching with people in the in like all the swing states and stuff sure why not maybe why not right so (laughs) although you know i'm thinking back again to your to your newest show vaxxed and waxed and even just even even just vaxxed like that's such a um Flashpoint. It, no, it's, it? it's a flashpoint flash in, in America. I don't know if it is in the UK as well. But the idea of like just getting a vaccination, which is, is something that as kids we never thought about. It's like our parents just got us vaccinated for everything when we were kids. If, and now it's become find, this political thing. What I find interesting is like... I lived in the northwest of England during lockdown. I, I did a little geographical. I was like, I'm going to move to Manchester. And then I moved to Manchester and I went, I hate Manchester. And then I moved back down to London. Mm-hmm. But I didn't get a dog or a baby. And that is the main thing. Um, 
And um, what I noticed, noticed in some parts of England is that QAnon rhetoric has kind of really filtered through, you know, and I totally think it's from this, um, you know, Donald Trump and all his business back, you know, back a few years ago. What was the question again? Vax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that anti-vax um, rhetoric has, has kind of filtered through to the UK in that QAnon sense. It's really odd. It's really odd. It's really odd. It's that emotional... It doesn't make sense. Like it's, it's very emotional. What do you think the anti-vax thing is here? At the core. It, at the core? It feels as though. Cause it's not that people are stupid. It's, it's, it's something else. It's this. No, it's, 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 it's more a sense of tribalism. Hmm. I get the sense and the social media has helped break us apart into our, into our separate tribes. You know, the idea that Facebook, you could have your own groups and you could have your own friends, but it's siloed us off. So now that's all we hear. And it's become these echo chambers and, and everything gets lumped into that. So it's not just, you know, are you a, a Liverpool fan or are you a Man City fan? But now everything has been divided into these tribes. And so vaccination just became one more thing where you're either on this side or you're on that side. And you can't agree on it. Kind of like you said about like people have to masquerade as moderates now. (laughs) You can't be you can't can't just be in the middle. You have to pick a side. Well, it's, it's, you know, liberal women are the sluttiest. So, if, you know, a, a Republican man, if he wants access to sex, he's going to have to like, he's going to have to either woo a conservative, but it might take longer and he won't get easy access to sex. Or he's going to have to have casual sex on the Internet with a liberal. Oh, it's, it's not that the it's not that the secret was that it's actually the conservative women who are the who are the kinkiest because they're so repressed. Just like they just are like. Just like how you like the the most um, what's the saying that goes like the most homophobic politicians are usually the ones who are secretly gay and they're just they're just yeah. outwardly hateful because they're 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 experiencing their own shame. It's a weird world, isn't it? I wish we could go back to the nineties. I think the nineties were, you know, yeah, not the eighties. I think the fashion was too weird, but like the nineties, good, good era. The nineties were good for me. I'll, I'll, I'll take the nineties. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No cell phones, um, no social media, telephone numbers on pieces of paper, calling a landline. It was slower, but our little brains can't deal with 2022. I don't think. How do you think you would have fared as a comedian in the nineties? Well, I was a young child, so probably not well. (laughs) That's the wild thing about comedy in the 2020s, is that there are a lot of kids doing it. Well, they've pop star-defied it, right? Because now it's like, yeah, now everyone's getting younger. They'll go out and they'll, like, agencies will, like, pick up a bunch of, like, 20-year-old, you know, 20, 25-year-olds, and they'll bring them on their agency, and they'll just see who wins the race, like labels used to do, right? They just pick up a bunch of pop stars and then one would make it they get rid of the rest but social media has made it easier for that too because it's just another shade of being an influencer is to be a comedian on tiktok or say funny things because then you can parlay that <clears throat> into 
commercial success or brand deals and yeah it's definitely become more like you know fluid in terms of like you're not just a singer you're now a singer an influencer do you know what i mean it's all this it's kind of like multi, like a 360 360 situation um, how do you how do yeah. you view your use of the different platforms right well tiktok i had a a, a flurry of success during lockdown and then I just got bored um I just got bored because I f- ran out of things to talk about and I think that's that's happened quite a lot I think with creatives like uh, you know this there's this kind of like imagery that oh we did loads and we built this during lockdown I think a lot of us were just fucking trying to get through both financially spiritually and mentally right um um so I'm hoping that my creativeness comes back Instagram it's great. Like you guys use Instagram more here. I'm, I'm really bad at it. I'm, I'm good, but I'm bad at it. And the thing is, I've, I'm, I've got addiction issues. So if I'm not careful, I will just waste a whole day. I've been reading this book by uh, Johan Hari called Stolen Focus, which talks about technology hacking our brain. And um, you know, yeah, it's really great. It's really great. I mean, he does get a lot of stick in the press, but there's definitely stuff in there that you can pick out. And, um, you know, it's, it's how, you know, we have been hacked. Our brains have been hacked by technology. We are the product. And in order for us to get our time back, the whole, like the whole commercial aspect or the whole model of social media needs to change. We can't be the product. And he explains it or he likens it to back in the olden days when they used to put lead in paint and everyone went, hang on, you can't put lead in paint. There was paint and there's still paint now. It's just, they don't have lead in it. And that is what he thinks needs to happen for social media to kind of coexist and benefit us. If, if all the companies were told by everybody, like, like, a big authorities you need to fucking sort it out and change the model they'd have to change the model and they'd they're smart people they'd find way to ways to monetize it either a subscription or whatever and serve us rather than us being served to advertisers and i think that that is the point because our brains aren't going to accelerate and grow faster and we've just got the brain that we have and you know we've just got an old school prehistoric brain at the you know at, at the core of it so do you feel like it's it's not useful to use social media as a way to try to convey your yeah, comedy. Totally, that, be, the I way, very the way to experience Eleanor Conway's comedy is to see you in person, and not yeah. and not try to get teased by a TikTok video or an Instagram post and go, oh yeah, I want to see that person. I think it's difficult. I think it's a difficult relationship uh, because obviously you need to the market that we're in. You have to grow an audience. So you need to put yourself out there a little bit in that mode. Otherwise, you'll be like one of those road comedians that I speak to in the UK that are like a little older and they're like, I don't get all this TikTok stuff, you know, and, you know, and they, you know, and the, and the newbies are coming up and they've got a couple of million on TikTok or whatever it is and they're selling tickets and, you know, it's all about money at the end of the day. Can't forget what, I can't remember what the question was, Sean, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... Well, so how do you feel about trying to sell your comedy or sell your brand online? Do you try? I don't mind it. No? (laughs) I don't mind it. I don't mind it. I'd like more money, uh, please. Obviously not. Otherwise, you wouldn't be on my podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Selling the soul to to the devil, Sean. Well, I mean, but you have to understand from, from my side of it, the the number of of lesser comedians I had to interview just to get to you. Shush. 
<laughs> the backroom deals with your publicist that I had to make. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you had some very good comedians on this podcast. I'm honored. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. I- Russell Howard was on it. I was like, oh, wow. Lovely. <laughs> Do you know what that's funny? Do you know what funny? What's funny is Russell Howard has been um, like performing in New York while I've been here, and everyone's like, "We heard like," and he's been popping up as like a mystery British guest, mm-hmm. and, and a couple of people go, "We thought it was you," and I'm like, "I am not famous," but um, <laughs> and, and then everyone's just like, "We thought it was John Oliver," <laughs> and like nobody's got a clue who he is, and I'm like, "He's like one of the biggest stand-ups in the UK," and they're like, "Oh, he was this Russell Howard came and he was really good." I'm like, "Yeah, he's Russell." Howard I'm not surprised (laughs) so I guess this that that allows us to circle back then to this idea of being close to fame versus versus being famous yourself do you do you aspire to become famous through comedy um I aspire to be more wealthy that's an important distinction isn't it to have wealth versus like you would be you would be perfectly happy joyous and free if you had a lot of money and yet people didn't know who you were um i would i would be happy if i could make more money in comedy and i'm sure Mm -hmm. every comedian would be um i think what i've learned in the past couple of years is that um life is short you know i've experienced a couple of deaths since lockdown started life is very very short and it's actually surprising when you go oh that person died how did that person like what um life is short and actually you know I'm, you know, I'm, uh, how long have I got left on this earth? How long, uh, how do I want to spend that remaining time? Do I want to spend it chasing money or chasing fame? Or do I want to spend the last, you know, the, the, the remaining years sort of um, doing what I love, traveling around, you know, doing stuff that makes me happy, seeing my family, being a good friend, um, hopefully meeting someone awesome and just really living in the present. Like this idea of chasing, I think chasing this kind of like, I want to be like, who cares? No one's going to remember you after 20 years. Right. So who gives a shit? Just live in the moment. And I think if I could just, you know, enough money, maybe a good amount of money to buy a nice flat, that'd be good. Uh, also some nice clothes. Also, like, I'd like to get some Botox and get my hair done in a fancy res- in a fancy hairdressers and eat well, sushi. Uh, but, but I go on nice holidays. But apart from that, I, ju- I just want enough money, but like loads of it, but like not mm-hmm. too much. But, you know, does that make sense? Was that clear? It, no, it makes, I mean... Obviously, I'm 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 somebody who went into newspapers out of out of university, so I I wasn't thinking about about fame or fortune. I I just wanted enough to be able to to live a happy life. I think I think that's definitely changed for me in terms of goal. Like I've definitely changed from going. Oh, I want to make all of the money in the world. But imagine if you spent eighty years trying to make all of the money in the world. Like, what would you have to, do you know what I mean? You'd have missed out on so much. This, we, we're in this space now where there's such extreme wealth. I think, you know, what's his face? An Amazon guy sending a cock into space was a really... <laughs> Jeff Bezos. That's it. Jeff Bezos sending a cock into space was a really powerful image in a, in a time where a lot of people were really struggling. Like the world was struggling, climate change, COVID. A lot of people were really struggling to feed their families, lose their, you know, lost their jobs, all that sort of stuff. Um, and that was a real power, like that was a real, that's a, that's a real snapshot of where we are in 20, you know, 
where we are right now, like that kind of super rich, how much money do you fucking need? How much money do you fucking need? I, 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 like, that that you, I like that you picked Jeff Bezos and not uh, Richard Branson as a former Virgin employee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got secrets on me. No, he hasn't. Has that outlook, has that changed how you approach your comedy or no? Um, it's it's definitely changing. Like I'm going, okay, in 20 years time, do I, because I, I do a lot of international touring and I do a lot of festivals, right? That's my main vibe. And then I sprout off into different things. I kind of, now I'm kind of going, okay, do, where do I want to go? Like, where do I want to build next? Well, I want to come to New York. I'm probably going to lose money, but I, I can see myself being in New York in 20 years time. Do I want to go to Jakarta every year? Not really. It's too far. It's, you know, do you know what I mean? No offense mm-hmm. to Jakarta, but like, do I want, is that how I want to spend my time? Not, not really. Sorry, people of Jakarta, my Jakarta crew listening. Um, but I, d- I definitely think it's not always about money, right? So in, I think in sobriety, I think I can act in quite a lot of fear around money, but actually I'm trying to get deprogram myself and, and, you know, sobriety is helping a lot to kind of go, you know, listen to the heart and listen to the standards that you set for yourself and, and don't worry, the universe will provide for you. And I'm trying to sit in that element of faith um, because the universe has always provided, right? Um, <clears throat> and to come from a, pl- you know, come from it as a, a place from abundance. If I make a, if I make a decision from fear, Oh, there's not enough. I better take this next thing. I'm never that happy. Um, you know, that was quite scary coming here for the first time, but I could never have imagined what it was like to be here. You know, I'm here talking to you, you know, I'm doing my show. Um, I could never have imagined this and, you know, um, I'm sure there's wonderful things that are about to happen, you know, maybe not now, but maybe in a couple of years time from this trip. So, you know, you've got to go where the heart leads you. Right. A couple of years ago, we were at the start of the pandemic and you were thinking Manchester was a good idea. And now, and now look at you. Funny, isn't it? Funny. Now, now look at you. You're here in New York City doing your show and living the dream. I am living the dream. It's awesome. Like, it's a, like I am living the dream. Well, thanks, yeah. for sharing, thanks for sharing part of it with me. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.